So, good morning everybody, and morning to everybody listening at home. Um, as we know, the uh, passage this morning is from Luke, chapter 13, and uh, I'm going to read the, uh, the first nine verses. I'm sure everybody's had time to, to look it up now. So here we go. Now, there was some, there was some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. All those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it but didn't find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree. I haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and dig around it. And I'll dig around it, sorry, and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. Thank you very much, Paul. Thank you, Andy. And uh, good morning. Welcome, everybody. Uh, Welcome to you here at High Street. Uh, After six months of pre-recorded church, pre-recorded sermons, it's a joy, isn't it, to be here uh, in person. And it's a joy to be speaking to real flesh and blood uh, listeners. I'm also really looking forward to not uh, looking at myself preaching on a Sunday morning. That's going to be a real real treat. Um, Of course, preaching is a two-way thing, as I often say. And it is a little bit sad that I can't see your faces, can't see your reactions, I'm going to see your eyes. So um, do help me, do uh, encourage me by uh, your eyes. If I crack a joke, uh, which I'm not promising to do, but if I do say anything remotely funny, then you can laugh with your eyes, maybe uh, slap your thigh or something like that, just to let me know that you're, uh, you're listening. Uh, and welcome particularly to you at home. Uh, as Andy said, we are really pleased that you can continue to join us and uh, I hope you can hear and see everything uh, very clearly in here. So welcome, everybody. Well, let's uh, turn our attention then to uh, this passage, uh, which you'll find printed on the outline uh, if you're in here, and uh, otherwise have it open uh, at Luke chapter 13 of your Bibles. And you don't have to have lived for very long in this world to be confronted with the reality of indiscriminate, catastrophic, and tragic suffering. You can find yourself watching a rerun of a comedy programme on TV, on Boxing Day, as some of us did in 2004, and find the programme interrupted by a news flash and the word tsunami 
enters the language. Just as that wall of water entered and then ended the lives of hundreds of thousands of men, women, and children around the Indian Ocean. Or you can get to September the 13th, 2020, and find ourselves sitting in a room like this, and knowing that a disease that nine months ago none of us had heard of has killed almost a million people and has damaged and impoverished lives of many, many millions more. You can flick on Facebook or whatever news stream you look at, and you can see it several times through the course of the year, the latest school shooting in America, in which some gunman has walked into a classroom in the middle of the day and emptied his legally owned automatic rifle in a class full of children indiscriminately. You can turn on the radio and hear of a massive, unexpected explosion in Beirut, killing hundreds, injuring thousands and making hundreds of thousands homeless. Or to bring this a little bit more personal, you can go to the doctors for the test results and you can hear those words, I'm sorry, I've got bad news. See, the reality is, if you just open your eyes for a moment, that we live in a broken world. That we live in a world of pain and tragedy and death. And you don't have to have thought very hard about the things of God before the question, why, enters the equation. And if you're a Christian this morning, and if you have tried at any time to share your faith with somebody who is not a believer, to try and convince somebody of the existence of God or the the lordship of Jesus, you don't have to have tried very hard or for very long before that same question is directed towards you. How can such suffering be right or real in 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 a world run by God? What is going on? What do you make of this? Well, I begin there because in this part of Luke's gospel, Jesus' teaching is prompted by a question about indiscriminate, catastrophic, tragic suffering and death. Now, it's important that we see that Jesus is not going to reveal everything the Bible has to say about this vast topic. He's not really going to answer the why question at all. In fact, this is quite typical of Jesus, that he answers questions according to God's agenda, not according to ours. So please don't expect to come away from this passage with a full-blown account of the Bible's view of suffering and evil and how to reconcile those things with the sovereignty and goodness of God. But Jesus actually does something even more important than that. He does something more valuable, more lasting, more searching, more important than answer those questions. He teaches us how to understand the time in which we live and how to respond rightly. He gives us here and in the whole of chapter 13 that we're going to be looking at over these five weeks, what we might call a full-blown Christian worldview. 
not just an answer to a kind of a, a critical or skeptical or, or, or apologetic question. He gives us a Christian worldview, a way of looking at the world that actually comes directly from God. Now, if you've got a Bible open, just look back with me to the previous passage, which, which gives the context for this one, because this actually carries on from uh, what just happened before in chapter 12. In verse 56 of chapter 12, Jesus is criticizing his hearers. And look at why. He says they don't know how to interpret the present time. They don't know how to interpret or understand the time in which they live. And to explain what he means, he gives them two examples. The first example is in 54 to 56. He said to the crowd, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say it's going to rain, and it does. And when the south wind blows, you say it's going to be hot, and it is. Hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? So the first example, Jesus says that like most British people, his audience are competent amateur weather forecasters. So in Palestine, this was easy because you have the Mediterranean in the west, and if clouds came, they would bring moisture and rain. You had the Negev Desert to the south, if the wind came from there, scorching heat. In Lancaster, it's a little bit more complicated. We've got Morecambe Bay to the west, we've got the Lake District to the north, we've got the Pennines to the east. I'm, just, I'm not working out the right directions, but I'm just doing it from my point of view. And when you see clouds coming from any direction... <laughs> You pretty well know, don't you, when those black clouds roll in from the Irish Sea to get your umbrella out. Or if you're under 40 or, or of that generation that don't use umbrellas, just, just grit your teeth and get wet on your way to school because for some reason we don't use umbrellas anymore. But Jesus' point is that we can read the signs. We can see something in the sky and the earth around us we can work out from that that something is going to happen in the future and we can respond accordingly. And then the second illustration he gives in 57 to 59, it's a little bit uh, more tricky. He says, as you are going with your adversary to the magistrate, try hard to be reconciled to him on the way or he may drag you off to the judge and the judge turn you over to the officer and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you'll not get out until you've paid the last penny. He's actually saying the same thing here. But he's saying, in, instead of the weather, you know how to work out your legal status. If you've made an enemy of someone, see, that, uh, see the signs that judgment is coming and do something about it. And we might say, well, I've, I've got that speeding ticket through the post. I, I've, I've got my three points. Well, pay off the fine before the three points become six points. Understand your legal position in this world and, and do something about it. And so the point for both examples is the same. They can read the warning signs for things that are relatively trivial, like the weather, or, or, or relatively important, like their legal status, and they can take appropriate action. But he says they do not understand the present time. They do not understand the world in which they live. They don't have a worldview that comes from God. And this is what he sets out to correct in 13, 1 to 9. He's going to show us how to read the warning signs of a particular future event of great significance for each one of us and how to respond accordingly. And so these are our two points 
on the outline, understanding the time and responding before time runs out. Firstly then, understanding the time in verses 1 to 5. What Jesus has just said then prompts someone in the crowd to raise the topic of human suffering with a recent local example. Verse 1. Now there were some present at that time, that is, listening to what Jesus just said, who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Now we don't know much more about this event than what is mentioned here. But it seems that there had been some kind of massacre of Jewish worshippers, presumably in the temple in Jerusalem, because that's what, where sacrifices happened, by the ruthless Roman governor Pontius Pilate, who you read about various times in the New Testament. It's a shocking act of oppression. It's an appalling atrocity at the hands of a powerful politician. And these people seem to be saying to Jesus, well, what about this? How does this kind of thing figure in your reading of the time? How do you interpret this? How do you make sense of it? And we might say in our kind of uh, modern language, well, how do you fit this sort of thing into your Christian worldview? Well, before looking at Jesus' answer, notice in verse 4 that he actually makes the case even more difficult by adding his own example. See, their example was an act of religious violence by a Roman tyrant. Something you you can easily say, well, that's completely unjust, and what we should do about it is rise up against the Romans and deal with the problem. But Jesus now gives them an example of what we might call a natural disaster, or possibly an industrial accident. Something that was no one's fault. Something that is just a freak accident. Some tower falling on some... People, presumably on a construction site somewhere outside Jerusalem. And so Jesus actually extends the discussion. He raises the stakes by giving them what is actually a harder case. He says it's not just the Romans and the human tyranny that you need to worry about. There are accidents in this world that are nobody's fault, that you can't blame people for. Earthquakes, sickness, disease, disasters, tsunamis. And when the sceptical objector brings their accusation to the Christian, I think we can learn from this. Because for the believer in God, a God of justice, who made people precious in his image, actually the question of suffering is even harder. It's a harder case to answer than the non-believing sceptic thinks. Jesus wants them to see That it's not just Roman persecution of Jews. But the whole fabric of the world has got a problem. And he says this is what we need to understand the time. This is what we need to face to understand the time. Well let's turn then to his answer. And he does two things. Gives them a correction. First of all. He corrects a false view. And you can see there that this false view is the assumption that there is a direct connection between sin and suffering in human life. Verse 2, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Yes, that's what they think. Or verse 4, or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? Yes, that's what they think. 
Because the assumption between a connection between sin and suffering is, is almost universal. It's there in most religions. The idea of karma and reincarnation in Hinduism and Buddhism. We see it in the Old Testament book of Job, whose friends look at Job's appalling suffering and they, they, they just are convinced that he must have done something to deserve it. Or John 9, Jesus' disciples see a man born blind and they say to Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? Somebody must have done something for him to deserve this. We occasionally hear it in Christian preaching. In the early weeks of the pandemic, there were the blogs and the sermons going around where people were suggesting that this coronavirus was God's judgment, perhaps on Chinese communism or Western secularism or both. But it was God's response to our current sin. And of course, there's a very nice implication of this. That when I'm free from suffering, I must have done something right. A little bit like Maria in Sound of Music. Perhaps I had a wicked... I'm not allowed to sing. (laughs) So we're okay. Perhaps I had a wicked childhood. Perhaps I had a miserable youth. But somewhere in my wicked, miserable past, there must have been a moment of truth. For you are here, standing there loving me, whether or not I should. So somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. It's a very common way of thinking, isn't it? This is how the universe is set up. People basically get what they deserve. What goes around comes around. You reap what you sow. And so the assumption is that the people who suffered those tragedies, they must have done something to deserve their fate. But look at Jesus' response. I tell you, no. And he says it twice, verse 5, I tell you, no, this is not the way to think. This is not a Christian worldview. This might be the way many people think. This is not the way Jesus thinks. And so the second thing he does, having corrected the falsehood, he wants them not to miss the real significance of these things, which is to provide a warning of a future event that is even more serious. Look at verse 3. I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. And again in verse 5, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. You see what Jesus is saying here? He's saying there is a moment coming, an event that is captured by that phrase, all perish, when God's judgment will come upon the whole human race for our rebellion against him. And so, yes, there is a connection between sin and suffering, but it's not a direct one. But there is a moment coming when all of the human race will face the disaster of God's judgment for our rejection of him as God. And the suffering we see in the world The suffering we experience now is a warning sign that we should read to understand that that judgment is coming. Of course, Jesus assumes some basic Bible knowledge here, doesn't he? He is thinking back, of course, to the beginning and the perfect world that God created. 
And then the first time humanity shook our fists at our creator and said, we want this perfect world, but we don't want him. And it's at that point in Genesis chapter 3 that God himself cursed the ground. He broke the world deliberately. And he put the man and the woman he had created into the broken world, into the world of chaos and disorder, out of the garden. So they might live in that world of death and decay and disaster. And Jesus says we must understand this world. So that when we see these things happening, these indiscriminate, catastrophic things, we will understand the bigger thing that is coming. Let me give two illustrations for this. When someone in our society commits an atrocity, and if the justice system is working, what do we do? Well, we don't send them on a cruise. We don't put them up in a hotel and send them on a package holiday. We put them in prison. And that prison is a constant reminder to them of the judgment that they have received. So when Islamist extremist Hashim Abedi was sentenced to his part of the 2017 Manchester bombings, he was told he would spend 55 years behind bars. So for the next 55 years, he will look at the world through his prison bars and he will know that he is receiving the judgment. And that is the same in our world. As we look around and see this cursed, disordered, or as Paul puts it in Romans 8, this groaning creation, what should we conclude? Should we, like Maria, conclude that if it hasn't happened to us, well, I must have done something right? Or should we conclude, like these people in the passage, that I must have done something wrong? No, what we should conclude is that God's final judgment is coming, and we need to take appropriate action. Let me offer a second illustration. The rumble strips on the way to the roundabout. You know those yellow strips of paint that they paint on the road to slow you down? There's some severe ones on the A590. As you join the M6 at Junction 36 near Kendall, you sort of bump over them and they get closer closer together as you get close to the roundabout. And they make the car judder and jolt uncomfortably. Now why have the council put them there? Just to be annoying? Because they had some spare yellow paint? No. They put them there out of kindness. Out of mercy. Because, I don't know about you, but when I'm flying down the A590 at 70 miles an hour, the roundabout looks miles away. And Emma, she's not a backseat driver much, but, you know, slow down. The roundabout's coming. But if she's not there, I've got the rumble strips to tell me. You've only got a short way to go. You're going too fast. The junction is coming. You've got to slow down or you're in trouble. And so the highways people have given us the rumble strips in their kindness and mercy. So we prepare for what is happening. And Jesus is saying here, that is how we are to understand human suffering. Indeed, that is how we are to understand death itself. It's the drumbeat of Genesis 4 to 11. And he died, and he died, and he died. Prepare for judgment. It's the constant, unmissable warning sign. As C.S. Lewis put it, 
pain God's metaphor, a megaphone to rouse a sleeping world. And so when you watch the news tonight and you see the latest atrocity, disaster, death statistics, how do you respond? Complain? Feel sad? Pity? Well, when Puritan Thomas Bradford saw these things, he said whenever he saw or heard of any pain or catastrophe, he would count it as a thing due to his own sin and would cry, Lord, have mercy on me. He had a Christian worldview. That would change the way we watch the news, wouldn't it? To say, I'm part of this. The judgment is coming. I need to respond. So, how do you respond? What is the required response? When you feel the rumble strips under the wheels, what are we to do? Well, that brings us to our second and more brief point, responding before time runs out in 69. The response here... And Jesus' teaching is actually very simple. And it's summed up in that word that Jesus mentions twice, the word repent. Now repent is a Bible word that it means much more than just saying sorry. It's certainly more than a religious action like penance. To repent means to turn. To turn 180 degrees. Having lived with our backs to God... We are to turn 180 degrees and live for God. That's what repentance means. To turn in our attitude of hostility to God and to bow to him as Lord. And Jesus says, in a moment of beautiful simplicity and clarity, the one thing you need to do to escape the judgment is repent. Verse 3, unless you repent you will all perish. Verse 5, unless you repent, you will all perish. And then, in 6 to 9, he gives us a picture vividly to show us why that repentance is so urgent and why that repentance is possible. And it comes in the form of the little parable. Let's read it again. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig round it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, cut it down. Before I went to Bible college, I worked for an insurance company whose tagline was, we won't make a drama out of a crisis. It was a great tagline, actually. And what Jesus does now is he he makes a little drama out of the crisis that we've just been talking about. So look at the drama with me. The little drama of the fig tree is actually a summary of the story of the nation of Israel. The vineyard and the fig tree were both classic images of the people of God in the Old Testament. 
because they express God's intention that his people would be fruitful as they live under his rule as their king. And there are two details of the parable that I want us to grasp. The first is God's patience. See, if we've understood that the real atrocity in this world is human rebellion against our creator, the question that we should be asking is not why does God allow suffering in our world? The question we should be asking is why does God allow our world to continue at all? Why didn't the judgment come in Genesis chapter 3? And the answer here is God's patience. Notice that the drama is told in the middle of the story. So we pick up the story with the owner paying a final visit to the fig tree. And as Jesus continues, we see in verse 7 that this cycle of visitation and fruitlessness has been going on for years. From the point of view of Jesus' present hearers, this is their backstory. This is the story of Israel and God's incredible patience with his rebellious people. As he sends them prophet after prophet after prophet and pleads with them. To heed his word and turn and repent. And he says there is one more chance. As John says in chapter 3, John the Baptist, the axe is at the root of the tree. Now is the time to repent. And so Jesus is speaking here of God's patience. A patience that extends to those hearing the parable. A patience that extends to us hearing the parable. That God's judgment that is deserved, is held back for a little bit longer so that all who hear have an opportunity to repent. It's the first detail. God's incredible patience. But there's another detail that I want us to notice in verse 8. Not only do we see God's patience, but we see his extraordinary grace. See, the vine keeper says, leave it alone for one more year. But he doesn't just leave it alone. He says he's going to dig around it. Actually, to to aerate the roots. To encourage the nutrients. And he's going to give it fertilizer, literally manure. He's going to pour on a load of good stuff. And he's going to dig it around like a good gardener. In other words, he himself provides the means. In Luke's gospel, you can see that this is the the word of God, the spirit of God, the power of God. And the gospel itself that will make this repentance possible. And I think there's a hint, an undercurrent of how costly that will be for Jesus. Remember in the first part of the passage, I don't know if you noticed this, but it was explicitly Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And in the second example, it was explicitly the residents of Jerusalem who were no more guilty than the others. And I think Luke is showing us here a little hint of what is to come later in the story. Here is Jesus, the innocent Galilean, on his way to Jerusalem, whose innocent blood will be shed by Pilate As a sacrifice for the guilty. So that all who deserve judgment may repent and be saved. Such is the extraordinary grace of God. He gives time to repent. 
But not only that, he gives the means. He gives us his one and only son, the innocent, who takes death upon himself so that we may turn back to God. And as we saw a few weeks ago in Luke 15, this turning back is not some dry religious action, but it's like the lost son returning to a joyful welcome of the father. So here is a microcosm, a miniature drama of the story of Israel and of our world. God's incredible patience as he gives us time to turn back. His grace in giving us the means, the word of the prophets, and now this word of the gospel that gives us the Lord Jesus Christ and his blood sacrificed so we can return. Well, let's conclude. And as we do, I think we need to take a step back and see what Jesus has given us here. He's given us far more, I would suggest, than an answer to our questions about suffering and God. He's given us a full-blown Christian worldview. And I want to break that down into three gifts. He's given us clarity, priority, and urgency. First thing Jesus has done, he's given us clarity, hasn't he? Do you remember he said we're competent amateur weather forecasters, but we're ignorant about the nature of the time we live in. But, but now we're no longer ignorant. It's so easy to be like that, isn't it? To spend our life looking at the details, looking at what is on our calendar this week, what the weather is doing tomorrow, what's on social media today, what the cricket score is, whatever it is. To look at the details of life, but never take a step back and say, actually, what is really going on in this world? And Jesus has given us that picture. And he said, what is going on? The big thing is that God's judgment is coming. And we live in this world, not because there is some natural sort of evolutionary cycle, but because God is holding back his wrath for one more day. Some of you remember Shishen Wang, our Chinese pastor, who has now gone back to China. And he was very fond of saying, and I, I, th- I think I remember the, the sort of the penny dropping moment for him, when he said, actually, the reason the sun came up today was so we can tell other people the gospel and we can repent. And he's very fond of saying that. Sometimes it would annoy me because I'd be thinking, look, I've got all these detailed things to do to live my life. My diary is full. And he would be saying, look, the reason the sun came up today, what a brilliant gift to have such clarity. And the clarity for us is to Repent. To be living the Christian life of turning back to God. The former principal of the Bible college that we went to, the one who retired way before we got there. On his retirement day, David Broughton Knox was asked, what are you going to do in your retirement? And most people say, well, I'm going to play golf, I'm going to grow roses, I'm going to write a few books. And he said, I'm going to repent. That's what I've been doing all my Christian life. That's what I'm going to be doing throughout my retirement. To repent, to keep turning back to God. 
to do that over and over again. That is the clarity Jesus gives us. The second gift he gives us is priority. So he's saying, look around you, take note of the immense suffering in the world. Whether it's the human political atrocity or the freak incident. And understand that this is God's gracious warning that judgment is coming. That we're going over the rumble strips towards the junction. And therefore the priority he leaves his disciples with is not to fix the problems but to proclaim the gospel until his return. And this gives us a priority that matters. See, just for example, it's a great reminder to parents, isn't it? We took our son to university yesterday for the second year. And all of those years of, of training and preparation and discipleship and equipping, and you're kind of leaving them uh, in the center of London, this big, wide world. And you think, what have we been preparing him for? Well, I want him to go and get a good degree. I want him to learn. But has our parenting been about this great education so that he can get on the career escalator and have this middle-class existence of material prosperity and a secure retirement? Is that what parenting is about for Christians? I think Jesus would say, no, it's preparing them for judgment. If you're a parent this morning, that's what you're doing. And it's a great reminder to young people. As that inevitable ladder of exams and uni and career starts, before you step on that escalator, pause to think. Do you understand the time? Now is not the time to be investing in this world, to investing all your energies in this world for career and wealth and ease because God's judgment is coming. Now is the time for repentance and for the calling of others to repent. And Andy and Joe mentioned before students coming to Lancaster. If you're listening and you're a student and you're about to arrive, what are we going to say to you as a church as you come? Well, what we say is in your time at university, you may meet your future spouse, you may get cancer, you may get buried. You may also get a degree. But that's the mindset of Jesus. What is your priority going to be? And it's a great reminder to us as a church, as we relaunch our physical gatherings, what are we doing this for? To see friends again? Well, that's great. We're preparing the world for judgment. We're making disciples of those who will live a life of repentance. We're raising gospel workers. That's what we're doing as a church. Raising gospel workers who will spend their lives calling others to repent. He gives us clarity. He gives us priority. And finally, Jesus gives us urgency. Here is the perspective of God. For every one of us, for everyone listening at home, for every one of us here, for every man, woman and child on this earth, that there is nobody who does not need to repent. See, verse 9, God's patience does not go on forever. There will come a time when 
Shishen will no longer be able to say the sun has come up because time will have run out. The rumble strips will have come to an end. How kind of God to warn us. How kind of God to give us this day. But now is the time to repent. Now is the day of salvation. And so if you've never done that before, can I urge you today to repent. Turn back to God. And if you've done it a million times before, today is the time to do it again. So let me lead us in a prayer that will help us to do that. And the prayer's on the screen if you'd like to follow it in your own heart and say Amen with me. Heavenly Father, I know I do not deserve to be part of your eternal kingdom. Please forgive me for turning from you and trying to live life by myself. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to die in my place and rise again so I might be welcomed back into your family. Please help me to live with Jesus as my king from now on. Amen.